Captain Ron, coming to you from our friendly skies above the Pacific Ocean. Welcome to Finding Old Bats AUM, Awareness, Understanding, and Mastery, a podcast about combining mental health and spirituality to live a more meaningful life. This podcast is designed for those of us looking for the answers to questions about how we can incorporate spiritual and scientific concepts into our daily lives with the goal of improving our mental health and that of others. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Prashant Clutch Sharma, a psychiatrist and someone who wants to bridge the gap between spirituality and science. Enjoy the show. Thank you for that introduction, Captain Ron. I really appreciate it. That is Captain Ron, ladies and gentlemen, live from the cockpit of a 747 flying somewhere over the Pacific Ocean. I wish you fair skies, Captain Ron, and a safe landing in Japan. Today, we are discussing the power of rituals, the meaning that they carry and the power that comes along with that meaning. And when I say ritual, I don't mean a religious ceremony only, although it certainly can be that, but any activity that we do where there is a series of actions in a certain order to achieve a given objective. I realize that sounds extremely vague, so we will jump into some details about this. Now, first off, what inspired me to do this topic? Well, It was actually after listening to Damien Eccles' book, Life After Death. If you haven't read or listened to this book, I highly recommend it. His story is tragic and incredible, and of course, he discusses the power of ritual and magic with a K. More on that a little bit later. It's fascinating stuff, as is his story, and the audiobook is narrated by none other than him, so I highly suggest checking it out. Now, in general, when we're thinking about a ritual, we can ascribe it to a habit even. For instance, we can have an early morning routine, right? Let's say you wake up, you drink your coffee, you do a meditation session, you walk your dog. That in itself can be a ritual. It can bring a certain amount of meaning to your everyday life, and it can even set the tone for the entire day. It reminds me that I need to incorporate more rituals into my daily life as I have fallen off of this. Just as an example, I have a habit of waking up in the early morning around 5.20 a.m., brewing my coffee only to watch YouTube while drinking my coffee. (laughs) So I wake up so early, but then I do something mind-numbing as being on my phone. Yikes, right? So what I did some months back was I started sipping my coffee while listening to the coffee meditation on the Plum Village app. As most of you guys know, I absolutely adore this app. It has a lot of content for meditation on it, and in this coffee meditation, you take your time to be mindful of how the coffee tastes, what the temperature is, the texture, bitterness, and sweetness. You think about where it comes from all the way back to how the water you used to brew it fell from the sky. It's an amazing meditation, and it sets the tone for the entire day in such a positive way. Similarly, after doing my morning workout, I would sit outside on the balcony with my dog for about 20 minutes, just being mindful of the environment around us. Another great ritual to have that sets the tone for the day. I noticed that when I was practicing these rituals, I felt healthier, both physically and mentally, and just generally happier. But as we all know, us human beings have a tendency to fall off of activities that are healthy. I don't know why. So this is a reminder to myself to get back onto that. Now, when talking about the power of rituals, we have to talk about Dr. Jerome Frank, a psychiatrist and author. My favorite book by him is Persuasion and Healing. 
this science and art of taking care of patients in effect are rituals. He discusses that ancient shamans performing healing ceremonies were powerful in the meaning they carried and the comfort they gave to their patients. Similarly, we as physicians also have a role. No, I'm not saying that I'm a shaman, okay, but our roles are similar, but our ceremonies and rituals are different. Let me give you an example. For me as a psychiatrist, there are two ways I can approach a patient who comes to me for treatment. Now, the first way I'm going to discuss, I just want to say is not my approach as I could never be this way, but essentially it's that I would talk to the patient in a matter of fact way ask them their symptoms in a checklist fashion, and then advise them of the medications I will be prescribing. And yes, some doctors do practice this way. The second way I can practice is how I usually do it, which is meet with the patient and first do what we call a role induction. I let them know what my role as a psychiatrist is with them, what I will try to help with, and what I need from them. Then comes the listening part. This is important. One of my mentors used to say, if you just listen, the patient will tell you 90% of the story and you just fill in the gaps with your questions. Patient and compassionate listening is crucial along with reflection of some of the emotions the patient is going through. I ask the questions I need to ask and then I explain to them what is going on. Is this more of a brain-driven depression? Is this more of a depression caused by life story elements? Do they have some maladaptive, you know, negative coping strategies or habits that are worsening their mood, or perhaps they have certain personality traits that cause them to be prone to negative thoughts or feelings. I tell them about these things and ask for their thoughts in a very open-minded manner. And finally, we talk about medications if appropriate, the role of medications, potential side effects, role of therapy, types of therapy, and the future. So you think about those two approaches, and they are as different as can be. Now you might say, but Prashant, the medications are doing the same thing in both cases, who cares? Well, it turns out it matters. The approach to the patient is crucial because there is a ritual and ceremony in this approach that carries with it a great deal of power. As physicians, we have a healing role in the patient's life, and it is a privilege. Now, what if I told you that there have been studies done about this very thing? On one hand, you have a placebo medication being dispensed to a group of people by someone who is cold, has a neutral expression, and doesn't say much. On the other hand, you also have a placebo medication, but this time being dispensed by someone who is warm and caring, has lively facial expressions, and a conversation ensues between the two parties, even though it might be a minimal conversation. Well, guess what? The second group does considerably better. Now, I'm not saying medications are placebo, not at all, because medications have an appreciable effect size in studies, but I describe this example to illustrate my point that the approach to any given situation and thus the ritual and meaning in the approach are important. I like second that, Doc. Rituals in aviation are important too. You know, sometimes I think, hey, what about these pre-flight checks and aircraft walk-arounds? What if I skip them? You know, well, it's the difference, but I remind myself now, Captain Ron, those are important. Don't forget. Uh, well, I'm glad you remind yourself of their importance too, Captain Ron. If I'm ever in your plane, I'll remind you to rest assured of that. <laughs> Copy that, Doc. Copy that. 
Anyway, getting back to ritual, let's look at something that Jerome Frank described in his book. He said, Despite differences in specific content, all therapeutic myths and rituals have functions in common. They combat demoralization by strengthening the therapeutic relationship, inspiring expectations of help, providing new learning experiences, arousing the patient emotionally, enhancing a sense of mastery or self-efficacy, and affording opportunities for rehearsal and practice. I think what Dr. Frank describes here is crucial, and it's worth going through this one by one using practical examples. So first up, combating demoralization. The feeling of demoralization is certainly common in patients with mental illness, and with that there is a feeling of alienation. As healers, we fight against that by listening to the patient with compassion and accepting them. To the patient, they just went through quote-unquote confessing how they're feeling. Dr. Frank used the term confess, I believe, to illustrate the stigma associated with mental illness and how difficult it is to individuals to admit they have one. And even after this so-called confession, the therapist or healer accepts them. Not only that, the therapist and patient then start to work on the issues at hand. It gives them both something to work on together. As I tell my patients, you and I will work on this together. We each have a role. And this ritual of establishing roles, listening compassionately, and working together on something is an age-old tradition between the healer and the patient. Next is inspiring and maintaining the patient's expectation of help. We all need hope in our lives, and as physicians, we inspire hope in patients in different ways. We can build morale by establishing an expectation that the patient will improve in one way or another. For myself, I usually approach this in different ways depending on the patient. If we are to use a combination of medications and therapy, I talk about the countless studies showing the efficacy of medications and therapy combined compared to either alone. If we are to use a specific medication strategy that I use routinely, I talk about past successes and improvements. If we are to use a new therapeutic strategy, like for instance, transcranial magnetic stimulation, I will talk about the new promising studies using the procedure and what we can expect. And of course, if I have a patient who has been through so many different types of treatment without success and they feel demoralized because of that, I tell them this, I will never give up. And it's the truth. We will see this through and we will find something that helps, even if it means something out of the usual go-to regimen of treatments. This ritual of establishing and maintaining an expectation of help keeps the patient motivated and oftentimes helps them improve their symptoms. And then we have providing new learning experiences. As a physician, at times I often feel like a teacher. You know, I teach the patient, but I'm also a student as I learn from the patient as well. Thus, we both have learning experiences in this environment. This can be cognitive learning or experiential learning. With cognitive learning, we are often looking at theories and techniques, ways of dissecting automatic negative thoughts, for instance, or how to identify automatic negative thoughts themselves. Experiential learning, on the other hand, is looking at problems practically and identifying what Dr. Frank calls, quote, discrepancies between aspects of their assumptive world and actuality. Captain Ron, you want to chime in and give an example? Sure thing, Doc. Well, uh, for instance, I'll look at the traffic pattern on the ground and automatically assume that our pushback is going to be delayed, our luggage won't be loaded on time, and this will cause a cascade of delays to our destination on the next flight. 
Uh, but the reality is that that type of cascade only happens in a small number of flights. Uh, and so I use that reminder to correct my automatic negative thoughts. Thanks, Captain. Exactly what I mean. And that play between cognitive learning and experiential learning is yet another ritual. It provides experiences to learn from and to improve our lives. And the patient can count on this dynamic whenever they come into the office. Next up is emotional arousal. Why is this important? And also contributes to what we're talking about. Well, there is a therapeutic or positive effect of this. If you have problems with withstanding strong emotions, and if the therapist elicits strong emotions in you by discussing certain issues, in turn you develop confidence that you can stand highly intense emotions that you fear. There is a bit of exposure therapy at play as well here. So having these intense emotions can foster a sense of increased self-confidence and mastery. You can take that self-confidence and then use it in your daily life. Yet another ritual and process that happens again and again in therapy. And of course we have a logical segue into mastery and self-efficacy. Being in control is essential to all of us to a certain degree. Often, a sense of loss of control can lead to emotional problems. I have a ritual for this with patients as well. After a few months of seeing me, patients may thank me for their progress with their emotions and overall mental state. This, of course, is pleasing for me to hear, but I frequently flip this back onto them by reminding them that they are just as equally responsible for their progress. I do this because it's true. It is not I who drags the patient into our visits. I don't make the patient work on the things I advise them to work on in between visits. I don't make the patient take their medications regularly. I don't make the patient confront difficult situations in their lives. I don't make the patient process their emotions willingly, even the negative ones. No, they are the ones responsible for doing all of these tasks. And yes, these are actions that were brought on by discussion between the patient and myself, but the hard work is done by the patient. This is effective in instilling that sense of mastery and self-efficacy into the patient, and it is a ritual I rely on time and time again to help me take care of people. Last but not least in the examples that Dr. Frank describes is providing opportunities for practice. Oh yeah, good one, Doc. You might have an example for this with flying, right? I can't tell you the number of folks I see with flying phobias in my career, but you do that voodoo that you do so well and they get better? Yes, Captain Ron, that's right. I do that voodoo and people get better. The voodoo, which Captain Ron so affectionately calls, is exposure therapy, and it is just that. Practice for the patient to tackle the aspects of life that scare them the most, and practice brings about improvement. For instance, a rigorous regimen of exposure therapy will show the patient that their anxiety is steadily decreasing over time. This is both reassuring and reinforcing so that the patient will continue to meet with me and continue their practice. This goes back to cognitive learning and experiential learning as well. Now, let's bring this back to the beginning of this episode and the inspiration for this topic, Damien Eccles. Damien spent decades in prison for a crime he did not commit and he was eventually released in 2011. But there is a set of practices he used to essentially stay sane during his time in prison and beyond. What this is called is magic with a K, and it is a set of spiritual practices. One of the key components of it is finding or maintaining one's purpose in life. 
You guys know talking about purpose in life is one of my favorite topics, so this fits in well. Damien says that a lot of spiritual practices will say the goal is to become one with divinity, one with God, or something along those lines. But that concept doesn't make sense. If we were born just for the purpose of being one with divinity, we wouldn't have been born at all. This thought resonates with me a lot. For me, having a ritual of volunteering at a food bank once a week is much more powerful than doing prayers or attending a religious gathering once a week. Now, I'm not saying that the religious gathering is wrong or shouldn't be done, because that is a ritual in itself, but what I mean is establishing our purpose in life is crucial for many different reasons. There is one ritual that Damien has discussed in interviews. He describes it like this. Sit with your eyes closed. Imagine that you are standing in a prison cell. Everything in the cell is white. There is a window on the very back wall of the prison cell, kind of a slit of a window, but it's so high that the only way you can reach it is by doing a pull-up. Using brute physical strength to pull yourself up to this window, you do it, and when you do this, you try to make yourself physically feel. You want to add as much tactile sensation as possible to add to the visualization as you possibly can. So you want to make your muscles feel like they're straining, feel your shoulders pulling, feel your torso tightening up as you're lifting yourself above the window frame in your mind. And as your eyes go over the edge of the window frame, bright white light bursts in and completely consumes everything until there's no more cell, there's no more you, there is only white light. And if you do this three or four times back to back, takes no more than five minutes, you will find yourself a lot more focused, a lot of your anxiety will be gone, you won't be focused as much on what was causing you to feel despair. It's a simple exercise and easy to do. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, I listened to Damien's book, Life After Death, but it seems if you want to learn more about magic with a K itself, you should look at the book High Magic. Again, that's Magic with a K by Damien Eccles. Full disclosure, I have not read this book yet but I do plan to. So that is, in a nutshell, the power of rituals, persuasion, and healing. Of course, there's a lot more to talk about in this topic, but I think this is a decent start. If you have thoughts on this, feel free to email me at prashat.sharma at concisepsych.com. I'll put my email in this episode description. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, let me know as well. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Our podcast is available on Google, Spotify, and Apple, so make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. For now, have a wonderful rest of your week, and till next time, friends.